This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. Mitch McConnell is an extraordinarily successful politician, despite not quite being a typical politician. He is proudly uncharismatic. He is, relatively speaking, unpopular in his home state of Kentucky. And he boasts of being the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper. When it comes to snuffing out legislation he does not like, which is virtually everything that comes over from the Democratic-controlled House. So what accounts for his success? How does he keep winning elections in Kentucky? And why did his Republican colleagues keep making him their leader in the Senate? Here to discuss it is CQ Roll Call's senior Senate reporter, Niels Lesniewski. Niels, you've, you have been um, you know, covering the Senate for the better part of a decade now uh, in one capacity or another for CQ Roll Call. You've gotten to know uh, Mitch McConnell sort of up close as much as a reporter can uh, for uh, for a public official, and I I I I feel like I do also. I don't I don't know the senator in any sort of personal capacity, but uh, in terms of observing him, I feel like I I am uh, rarely surprised uh, anymore by McConnell. But what is it that you find is the the McConnell 101 that you need to tell people about when they just don't understand why McConnell keeps getting elected, why his colleagues respect him, why he keeps getting what he wants done. He's an incredibly powerful person. What accounts for that success if you're just explaining it to a person who just doesn't get it? There's two sides to it. On one hand, he understands the inside game in the Senate as well as, if not better than anyone else who is still around. Uh, so he knows how to corral his conference to support him uh, and prevent the, the leadership challenges uh, that might uh, befall other uh, Senate leaders. But he also and maybe this is the the greatest trick of all, knows how to embrace the image uh, that he has of being, as he would put it, the Grim Reaper, or of being uh, sort of the the constant enemy of the Democrats. Uh, And he embraces that role more than probably just about any other politician. I would, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, he in in his uh, uh, memoir from a few years back, The Long Game, which you wrote about uh, when it when it first came out. I just want to read the first line of the introduction because it, it encapsulates a lot of that uh, that 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 you just explained. And this is McConnell in his own words. Over the three decades I've been a U.S. senator, I've been the subject of many profiles. I usually play the villain, according to the standard good guy bad guy accounts favored by most Washington reporters. The more positive ones tend to focus on my ability to broker deals with supposed adversaries, keep my head when others don't, and win elections I'm not supposed to. Sort of, he he doesn't get rattled very easily. He doesn't say anything he doesn't have to. And he pursues his goals through the ways that he knows to do it in, in the Senate uh, with, with remarkable consistency. Um, so, and the the agenda now in, in, in the, you know, uh, the 
sort of last couple of years of Donald Trump's first term is primarily just filling the executive and judicial branches with Donald Trump's nominees, which is about as unflash as you can get. But as as he likes to state, he, the Senate is in the personnel business, right? And and there is no there is no more boring uh, aspect, I think, to a lot of people's lives than thinking about personnel and HR and so forth. But that is how McConnell sees himself. And he has actually endeared himself to the Republican establishment uh, and even grudging respect from people who don't appreciate him in the Republican hierarchy because he's so good at doing that. The the, the transformation of the the federal judiciary has been the priority of of McConnell throughout uh, the Trump administration. Uh, So much so that I don't know if this clip uh, would be from, you know, you could have a clip from 2017. And I'm prioritizing in terms of what I choose to do in the Senate because I get to make the scheduling decisions, uh, confirming these uh, judges to begin to change the federal judiciary. Or literally from this morning. These are the kinds of nominees who once would have moved swiftly through the Senate frequently by voice vote. I wish we could rediscover that tradition, but one way or another, we'll continue to make progress. And this is, uh, again, unflashy work. It, it works to his strengths because he likes to portray himself as that unflashy person. And meanwhile, the legislation uh, from that's coming over from the Democratic House, from this very energetic uh, Democratic majority that just took office in January, it's just sort of piling up uh, outside the uh, Senate door and, uh, and, and, and will not move uh, or is not likely to move at any point without his uh, um, consent on it. There was nothing more predictable than when uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the House Democrats announced that their top legislative priority was an ethics package that included campaign finance reform. Uh, There was nothing more predictable than that Mitch McConnell would have absolutely no interest in touching that. Uh, That McConnell, who in some ways made his mark uh, somehow in the Senate as the chairman of the Rules and Administration Committee or the ranking member of the Rules and Administration Committee, as the bulwark against restricting campaign spending under the... uh, the auspices of his expansive view of the First Amendment, uh, the fact that Pelosi and company then went to campaign finance reform uh, meant that there was no way that that was going to move at all, even if there would be some things in that ethics package that, you know, there may have been some senators on board with. Uh, it was not going to be something that would be on the McConnell agenda. Before we go on, I just want to just say, uh, let, let's just get a little bit of bio, a little biographical uh, information about Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, for for those who are again not as familiar with with it as 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 we are, he's actually not born in Kentucky. He's born in Alabama, uh, but moved to moved there as a as a fairly young man, and he has been. You know, a, a politician associated with Kentucky politics since his earliest years, correct? That's right. He came to Washington early in his life, uh, but really made his mark in politics himself 
uh, starting as the county judge in Jefferson County, uh, Kentucky, uh, which in Kentucky is roughly the equivalent of, of a county executive. And this is the Louisville area too. So it gives him a good geographical population base to be elected. Yes. And then he ran uh, for the Senate in 1984, was challenging a longtime uh, incumbent, but managed to to pull through and, and, and come to the Senate. Uh, and since then, worked his way up through the Appropriations Committee uh, into leadership and has sort of always been well positioned. And uh, has just sort of steadily progressed ever since then, uh, became the minority leader, uh, and then ultimately reached his lifelong ambition, which is something else that can be said about McConnell, is that being majority leader of the United States Senate was always his end goal. Uh, he is the rare United States senator who does not envision themselves as president of the United States. He does not look in a mirror and see the president. He sees the majority leader. And I think that this feeds actually right into the electoral success as well, which is that every six years, it seems like a, uh, a right of uh, tradition that the uh, Democrats, national Democrats feel like that or their allies feel that Mitch McConnell is vulnerable. They commission polls. They see that McC McConnell's approval ratings are somewhere in the 30s or 40s. Uh, and say this guy is vulnerable because he's a longtime incumbent and he's got negatives that are that are high that we can drive up and we've got some whiz bang candidate whether it's Allison Lundergan Grimes in 2014 or whether it's a possibility of somebody like you know that that whoever is the you know kind of new person that they think can can take him on and one thing that is it it just it doesn't. Tip, it has not worked out for Democrats. Uh, they, they, they have not been able to crack the code. They didn't even get close with Grimes, even though she came from a longstanding political family in Kentucky and, and ran a fairly good race. And, and, and McConnell's allies will say that this is just more of the same. And they, I've been fascinated. You pointed out something uh, that, that I just thought was you know, very clarifying, which is that the negative ads that are being run against Mitch McConnell could be the positive ads from his own campaign. We have one of those ads, and frankly, this is an ad against McConnell. It was a web ad that American Bridge, uh, the liberal group, put out just a couple of days ago, uh, and it's about blocking Nancy Pelosi's agenda, which when you're in a primary season in particular in Kentucky, I, I don't think Nancy Pelosi pulls very well in Kentucky either. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Think of me as the ground reaper. And I could see that ad working well uh, if Mitch McConnell was running for Senate in, say, um, California <laughs> or, or New York or even maybe even Illinois, which isn't even that far from Kentucky. But the, the, this seems to me always to be a, almost a fundamental understanding 
of why people would support Mitch McConnell, which is that if you're if you set yourself up as the oppositional figure to somebody who is universally regarded as the the liberal sort of stalwart of the Democratic Party, that's a really good position to be in in Kentucky. And he doesn't even have to run his own ads to say it. He's got the Democrats saying it for him. It's it's remarkable. It reminds me of uh, the 2014 campaign when there would be uh, environmental groups uh, that would come in and spend money either against McConnell or in support of Lundergan Grimes, uh, complaining about Mitch McConnell's opposition to the Obama administration's climate agenda, while Mitch McConnell was, on the other hand, promoting his blockade of the quote-unquote war on coal. It's the same messaging framed slightly differently. I don't know that the Democrats have found a message in Kentucky that can actually translate uh, to Kentucky voters, and and I don't see any reason yet to suspect that they will uh, in 2020, particularly uh, because Donald Trump will be the top of the ticket uh, in 2020, and he's quite popular in Kentucky. And Democrats still don't have a candidate uh, to run against McConnell. There's a little technicality there, right, too. <laughs> that's, uh, that's certainly true. It's also an off-year uh, gubernatorial state, and so much of the focus right now uh, is whether or not Matt Bevin, governor of Kentucky, recurring character of Kentucky politics who – lost a primary to Mitch McConnell in 2014 for the Senate, um, whether or not he will manage to be bounced by the state attorney general, this guy named Andy Bashir, who is – where does that name ring a bell that, from? That is uh, Steve Bashir's kid, the former governor. And I, I don't want to completely discount – that there are people in Kentucky who do not like Mitch McConnell or that a Democrat can't get a solid 30 to 40 percent. I mean, there, there, there are some liberal strongholds. Mitch McConnell lives in one of them in Louisville. Uh, Louisville is not a, 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 a super conservative city. Uh, this is where my morning jacket is from, after all. <laughs> uh, but but it, it's usually just not enough. It, it, is, it isn't enough to, to fire up folks who do, you know, want some of – who do share Democratic priorities to knock off somebody who exhibits such power and presence as – as Mitch McConnell does. And, and there's long been uh, a reality in Kentucky and not just in Kentucky, uh, several other states, but where there are a lot of registered Democrats, particularly in eastern Kentucky, uh, what we'll call Hal Rogers country, uh, the, the former chairman of the House mm-hmm. Appropriations Committee, who uh, – already has the Hal Rogers Parkway out in eastern Kentucky mm-hmm. uh, and who does a lot of work to support the McConnell re-election efforts when they come about out there. A lot of those Rogers-McConnell voters are actually still registered Democrats from the old days, 
so looking at voter registration in Kentucky is another thing that over the years has been somewhat misleading. We should also note, too, that in addition to his leadership roles, his roles as an appropriator, uh, he is married to a very powerful woman as well, uh, Elaine Chao, as uh, previously the labor secretary in George W. Bush's administration and is the current transportation secretary in the Trump administration. And it, it's almost like that that aspect of his life. I mean, this is his personal life, but as a professional, you know, like there, there are two professionals in Washington. Uh, she's gotten uh, sort of hammered a little bit in the press uh, lately and, and uh, people expecting to, to sort of hurt McConnell by saying that Elaine Chow has stirred, you know, has uh, steered uh, projects and money towards Kentucky. But that also doesn't seem like a particularly losing uh, proposition for people in Kentucky. They're like, oh, we like those things. We like infrastructure. We like those the transportation sort of projects. Anywhere you drive around Kentucky, you'll find highways with names of prominent politicians, past and present. You know, and I always wonder whether or not the, the interstate that runs between Louisville and Lexington, Interstate 64, uh, whether that is being held for Mitch McConnell or for Elaine Chow. It seems like the, you know, real source of McConnell's power, Neil, is that he knows exactly what buttons to push and when to push them. And I th- let's talk a little bit about what, you know, the the way that he pushed the buttons and what may end up being, you know, the sort of top line historical significance of of him, which is the decision not to uh, uh, allow even as much as a hearing from Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee, to succeed Antonin Scalia uh, in, in, in 2016. McConnell moved so quickly to make the determination that no Obama nominee would even be considered by the Senate, uh, that it was one of the greatest gambles, maybe the greatest gamble of his his political career. And he just made the decision instinctively, as best we can tell. There were no... Uh, he, McConnell did not wait until Republican senators got back to Washington uh, to make that determination. I remember that weekend I was down in Florida not expecting much beyond the death of Scalia to develop over the course of the time that I was away from right. town. Yeah, this was over this was in February over a recess. Uh it was in the middle of a recess. Yeah. And I didn't anticipate that there would be a whole lot of news beyond the unexpected passing of Justice Scalia, but McConnell moved the ball all the way down the field and basically set himself up for what I would argue might have been, to use a football analogy since he likes going to University of Louisville football games, like the really long field goal when the punt may have been the more predictable choice. That's a that's a really good way of putting it, and it it resulted in, you know, the, the that Donald Trump got to make that uh, nomination after Trump won the presidency in November 2016. And it cemented a legacy for the court that will have McConnell's stamp on it almost as much as it will have Trump's stamp on it. 
And, and there's a possibility that it could go even beyond that because we recently uh, heard McConnell say once again, reiterate and maybe clarify a little bit that his view that the uh, presidential election year is no time for a Supreme Court nominee only applies when the occupant of the White House is from another party. Right. So it, it is. And this is something I think that sort of knocks the wind out of Democrats, which they just can't they can't uh, believe that somebody would be that cynical. But the lesson, I think, for them is that this is the way that you kind of get this stuff done. You sort of you, you know exactly what the rules are. And even if you have to change them or alter them, I mean, you keep pursuing them the way that you get them. And they're still, they still seem taken aback just by Garland. And meanwhile, uh, you know, Garland's not, you know, like falling by the wayside for the Supreme Court. And yet Trump is, is in line if he, you know, if there's a vacancy to fill a third, you know, seat while they're still sputtering over Garland. Well, Niels, uh, we could probably talk for hours about the Senate Majority Leader, but uh, we will wrap it up there. Thank you very much for uh, for sharing your thoughts, and uh, we'll we will be back on this topic uh, as this uh, election cycle certainly develops. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast and other CQ Roll podcasts on Apple, NPR One, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And for more on this and other stories, particularly the ones written by Niels about McConnell, please visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thank you for listening.